Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Business Advantage Presents AT Law with Tammy Gaw. I am Alicia M. Pennington, your host and owner of Advantage Athletic Training, back today with Tammy to continue our conversation on concussions. This is episode two and a continued conversation from episode one. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, go ahead and go back and listen to that one so that you're all caught up with the content for today. All right, picking up right where we left off with the last episode, uh, we want to jump right into uh, various components that might be affected or affecting athletic trainers when we think about concussions from a legal standpoint. So um, one of the first ones that I want to jump into are position statements. So um, the NATA released their first position statement regarding concussion in 2004, and uh, their most recent one was published in 2014. Since then, several other medical professionals, including the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine, American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, and of course the consensus statements from the International Conference have all been developed in an effort to address how best to manage concussions. So Tammy, with the technology and understanding of concussions moving so quickly, what do you feel is best practices in terms of staying updated on this information? Well, as we talked about in the previous episode, and I encourage people to go back and make sure you listen to that because there's a lot more in-depth that we went into. Um, You know, diagnostic tests, as objective as they claim to be, you as a medical professional, as an athletic trainer, you cannot hang your hats on the fact that that will be something that can protect you in a court of law. Mm. And so... It is, it is our professional responsibility to understand how those work, to understand the position in which they're trying to, some of these companies want to get, you know, they are, with no pejorative, you know, criticism, they are money-making companies. Sure. And so they will try and sell their service to athletic trainers. Yeah. Um, and... It is our responsibility to not necessarily drink the Kool-Aid and accept what someone sells us Mm -hmm. right off the top of our heads. Um, We cannot always rely on that. I promise you that those companies will not be there to defend you in a court of law Mm. if something goes on and your name ends up getting attached to it. You do not want to hang your professional reputation on a system or a diagnostic tool that in some cases has not had a long-term test. Um, One of the other things that gets, that I don't believe gets talked about enough in this day and age of electronics is medical privacy. You as an athletic trainer have a medical professional responsibility to maintain the privacy of your patient data. Yeah. And you have to it is, it is difficult. I will not lie to you. This is not an easy thing, but you have to understand what the implications of privacy law are about using some of these concussion tests as well. So mm-hmm. not only is it your job to stay on top of it, to protect yourself and to protect the athletes so that they are receiving and benefiting from the most advanced care 
treatment diagnostic tools possible, you also have to protect yourself. Yeah. And you can't always rely on that. So you have to stay up to date. You have to understand what those are. As there, we there, talked about in the last episode. Yeah, and say so there really is a sense of like a due diligence here. Like, you know, Absolutely. and and when I when I hear you talking about the diagnostic tools, it's not necessarily to say that, you know, what they claim to be doing aren't what they are doing, but um maybe just a singular tool is not the complete answer, right? It's it's our subjective and objective findings and these diagnostic tools and what you know about the athlete or, you know, it's just kind of the conglomerate of information, not just, well, this test told me they weren't concussed and thus they weren't concussed, right? Absolutely. And you've said it, I've heard you say it on previous episodes of this when I was binging catching up on on all of your past episodes. Little plug, I recommend everyone do that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you have said it you have said it before, that all of this is rapidly changing. Mm. And so the idea that the developments toward concussion, the idea that one test has not necessarily had a longitudinal study or a long-term study, and Mm -hmm. all of these different things, while they may sound great at first, don't have this long-term trail of evidence that can be used to back it up. Something may sound really great. I mean, don't let me get in a Bitcoin thing, but sure. <laughs> Bitcoin didn't exist a while ago and who knows what it's going to be in two years. Yeah. So don't hang your hat on an electronic development right away. That can be, sure. that can be really problematic. So, yeah. you know, if somebody comes in and is trying to, to sell you or sell your conference or sell your school district on a diagnostic tool, those can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Don't mistake me. They can be very, very helpful but they are not in place of your professional medical judgment. And they certainly, as I said, will not be the ones standing up to defend you in court. So it is our responsibility as medical professionals to stay updated on the entirety of the landscape, not just the diagnostic tools, but the things that are available in the CEUs that are offered with the NATA. They've gotten better at advancing and and, and bringing in more current things that you can take every year Mm -hmm. to be able to learn some of the newer studies and the newer evidence and the Mm -hmm. evidence-based practice and things like that. There's difference in your news, in your local, you know, regional state jurisdictions and legislators. Mm -hmm. There are lectures that you can have state laws, the development, all of these things that help you stay on top of concussions have to be part of the mix. It just reminded me when you said, um, you know, using a singular diagnostic tool to make a decision that I would uh, argue that one of the largest complaints I hear about um, in relation to diagnosing or not diagnosing a concussion is an ER physician runs a CT scan, CT scan comes back negative, they're not concussed. I think that's the the perfect example of what you're trying to demonstrate here that uh, though it is a diagnostic tool and though it could show a concussion in the sense that there's bleeding in the brain, it is not the end-all be-all. And... Um, Oftentimes, these concussions go undiagnosed simply because there's not bleeding in the brain. Uh, And I do think we've gotten, you know, we've come a little ways uh, with that. We're not seeing it to be as prevalent. But um, I just, it it came to my mind. I thought that was a perfect example of demonstrating uh, what you're saying. Obviously, a CT scan has its purpose. And um, we're not saying don't use a CT scan. But 
it would be beneficial if the ER physician understood that CT scans alone do not diagnose or not diagnose concussions. I could not agree more. (laughs) Physically impossible for me to agree more with you. And to piggyback even on that, I think you bring up another great example of where we are in this discussion around concussions. And that is that old school definitions of concussions were single traumatic hits, the kind Mm. of things that could be diagnosed Mm -hmm. by radiology, by, you know, different varying signs and positive and negative results, not being able to remember your phone number, these kind of things that, you know, some of us that have been in the industry for a while were part of at least the larger dynamic Mm -hmm. of ways to understand whether someone was concussed. Mm -hmm. The discussion around right now that is happening, particularly with retired players and trickling down to youth soccer players heading the ball Mm -hmm. is not one large hit. Right. It's repetitive micro trauma. Right. Repetitive micro trauma is not going to appear on diagnostics. Right. And that is I I hope I hope so dearly that someone comes up with a legitimate way to diagnose pre CTE in living in yeah. living patients. Yeah. Because right now the only way to diagnose it um is with you know brain yeah, cut, cutting the, the brain. brain open. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I, I did Which, see. Full disclosure: I've delivered mine. My my brain is going to go to the Concussion Legacy Foundation. There you go. Strictly because there are not a lot of women women's brains that are there. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. I mean that yeah. that makes sense. There's been a big push to get professional football players there, but not necessarily to get women's brains. Mm. There's not a lot of good research and data that go to what uh, you know this chronic micro traumas and repetitive hits, repetitive low grade hits in women athletes. Yeah. So that's sort of a tangent, but to bring it back to the idea that one diagnostic hit is not, or one diagnostic result is not going to be dispositive in what kind of traumatic brain injury we might be looking at. It can be helpful, but that's part of why having an athletic trainer as someone who sees these these kids, these professionals, these athletes day in and day out mm-hmm. that understand the difference in personality, yeah. they can understand whether this kid will or will, whether he's doing or she is doing something different than usual. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, it's part of a larger puzzle. There is not one puzzle piece, yeah. but athletic trainers are, in my opinion, I think we're the border to the puzzle. Mm, I like that. That's because, a good analogy. Because we have this ability to collect and in some cases extrapolate yeah. you know, what what the whole what the whole picture of this puzzle looks like. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that we need to to keep in mind. Yeah. With the understanding that one diagnostic result does not Right, right. And and so, you know, that's kind of in relation to, to position statements. And so if we shift our focus to um, state practice acts, at this point all 50 states have a concussion law that addresses diagnosis and return to play. Um, each one differs, and obviously uh, all of you should know what ap- what laws apply for the state that you live in. Um, but according to the CDC website in their heads-up portal, they state that, quote, 
Return to play laws include a variety of different components that can be complicated to implement, such as removal from play, collection of concussion histories, required training for different stakeholders, etc. Additionally, return to play laws do not always provide specific guidance on how each of the components of the laws should be carried out. And now, according to momsteam.com, the state of Washington was amongst the first to adopt a concussion law in 2009, and most states have modeled their laws after the one that was developed in Washington. So for those states that are that are licensed, um, I imagine that the State Practice Act would take that law into effect. Um, And so, but even if it doesn't, if your state practice act doesn't uh, specifically cite whatever the concussion law is, obviously we're still held to that. It's law. So, Tammy, in a place um, for you, you live in Washington, D.C., uh, where it's a lot easier to work in a number of different states due to proximity. Considering the nuanced nature of these concussion laws and how one could differ from the other, what would be your recommendation for working interstate or again, bringing, bringing back kind of best practices, how does one protect themselves when they're um, traveling amongst different states or potentially accepting work in different areas? Well, that as with most things is, uh, is, has layers to it. Um, Being a professional in any area um, is making an effort to know what the, what the rules are. Mm -hmm. Um, Law is sort of the reverse. Uh, if you are barred in one state, you cannot just necessarily go to another state to practice unless that state has some kind of reciprocity uh, with the state in which you are barred. Sure. Um, so I could I could get going in all sorts of, you know, <laughs> you look up Pro Hoc Vice one time if you want. I don't recommend it. It's not like cocktail parties. Um, some light reading for our listeners <laughs> just a little fun if you intend to go running into another state court um but you know it, you cannot be barred in one state and go to another just assuming that you know those states laws and sure. procedures i went to law school in california but i decided to move to the east coast so i never wrote the california bar so when i came out here i had to study in a very concentrated short time frame, mm-hmm. Maryland state law, because mm-hmm. I wrote the Maryland bar. Yeah. Maryland and California are not similar at all. You don't say. <laughs> I know. Imagine your shock. So there are things related to family law, to criminal procedure, to civil procedure mm-hmm. that are different in Maryland than California. Mm-hmm. So bringing that into an athletic training standpoint, um, much like law, you can't plead ignorance of yeah. the law and expect it to protect you from liability. Yeah. Um, yeah. You brought up D.C., which is great, and we can you can get to, I think, five different states in less than a couple hours, really. Mm-hmm. But to if you are not licensed in Virginia, you have a very difficult time practicing in Virginia. We sure. went through this with the World Police and Fire Games because we needed a great deal of, you know, a number of athletic trainers and the hoops that had to be jumped through mm. to get athletic trainers from D.C., Maryland, Pennsylvania, uh, Delaware, you know, ones who could get there and, and cover the large, the large requirement of athletic trainers that we had that we needed to make the games go off. Yeah. That required jumping through a lot of hoops at mm-hmm. the Virginia state level. Mm-hmm. Um so 
it was, but at the same time, if these athletic trainers came in from other states, just because they were allowed in this one case to practice in Virginia, it didn't necessarily mean that ignorance of Virginia law was going to protect them if something happened. Sure. So it's incumbent on every athletic trainer to know the different laws and the potential difference from state to state. Now, Mm -hmm. if you're in California, odds are you're not, with the exception of, of, you know, the national effort to allow for insurance to to cover athletic trainers that that travel with their teams out of state. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. Yeah, the Sports Medicine Clarity Act. Yeah. Correct. Right. Um, Which is always, going back to what we discussed in the last episode, always up for discussion at the Capitol Hill Day. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, always always feel free to get involved in that um, at your local and national level. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can't just assume you can go to another state and claim that the way that it works in your state is the way it works in every other state. Um, right. I've, I've found most state associations to be fairly helpful if you have questions. Yeah. So the, the information is there if you make an effort to reach out mm-hmm. and learn, mm-hmm. in my experience. Yeah, that, that's, I feel like that's good advice. That's a good way to, um, you know, I, I don't want to assume that people – Uh, think that they could just go to a different state and practice. Um, I know uh, Arizona, for example, they have a 120-day clause. So, uh, and it's specifically in effect because spring training is hosted in that state. So I would imagine maybe that Florida has one similar, but um, as an athletic trainer, you can travel there. uh, And you don't have to be associated with the team. This is simply just, you can work in the state of Arizona for less than 120 days Uh, in a year um, and not have to apply for licensure there. However, um, I think that still what would be in effect are Arizona state laws. So if you are, uh, you know, covering a tournament, let's just say in Arizona, but you live in uh, Nevada or California or New Mexico, um, just because you don't have to get licensed there doesn't mean that you don't need to be aware of the Arizona um, concussion laws, for example. So certainly with the state practice acts, uh, it's going to vary. And I wanted to to bring back in uh, another quote from that same article in the Sports Med Digest that we quoted in the previous episode. Um, and it says, quote, state legislators enacted return to play laws to protect children despite an uncertain evidence base as to the exact nature of the problem and the most effective ways to address it. As evidence from the medical field and implementation emerge, states have begun to amend their laws in response, and this is evidence of healthy and ethical policymaking. So kind of to your point, Tammy, it's our responsibility as professionals to know the varying laws and to be aware of them, but also to recognize that they're changing quickly. And as we said, uh, you know, in the introduction of this topic, even if we learned something last year, it may no longer be true or it may no longer be in effect uh, this current year. And I think that's why you continue to emphasize staying current with continuing education and, um, you know, various other things to make sure that we're practicing in a way that um, reflects the current standings or the current education or current laws. Absolutely. So uh, moving forward to standing orders and kind of piggybacking on um, state practice acts. Um, So standing orders are something that are required by most states. uh, And basically, this is establishing a relationship between a physician and the athletic trainer, ideally creating that in a written document outlining the understanding for scope of practice, 
while the athletic trainer works under the direction of that physician. Most of the time, the physicians are affiliated with the organization the athletic trainer works with or for, but not always. This can certainly be a personal relationship that an athletic trainer has with a physician. It's not necessarily the team doctor. One of the most common pain points I hear from athletic trainers regarding physicians and concussions is when an athlete is cleared and how the athletic trainer believes um, that they should be. So obviously, ideally, the physician-athletic trainer relationship would allow for conversation around this. But in the case that the team physician isn't the one clearing the athlete, let's say it's, um, you know, their primary care physician, but the, let's say uh, in an instance that the athletic trainer um, doesn't agree with the decision. uh, Tammy, how can an athletic trainer protect themselves from liability in a situation like that? Well, again, with the favorite thing about lawyers is we always tell people that we're not giving legal advice. Um, So with that caveat, yet again, um, we should come up with a little dance for it or potentially (laughs) a song. Um, There is, you know, you can, you can, you can try and protect yourself. We can set up as many defenses as possible. But Mm -hmm. like you said in the last article, Mm -hmm. anyone can bring a lawsuit. Now, whether or not that lawsuit stands or whether it has any merit, is a different discussion. Sure. But anyone can bring, well, within certain standing, anyone can bring a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So the best way to protect yourself is generally assumed to be documentation, documentation, documentation. Mm. Documentation that you adhered to the state practice acts, documentation that you adhered to best, best practices and the legal standards. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about this in a second about the reasonable, uh, reasonable prudent person yeah. and that professional standard. Um, every lawsuit and every disciplinary action is based on a unique set of facts and circumstances. Yeah. Um, and so you should never, even if you think the law is 100% on your side, you should never simply rely on that. Mm. Um, it goes back to, and we cannot say it enough, stay up on and adhere to the best practices and stay up on what the, the laws and regulations are in your state. Yeah. Um, documenting everything conversations with the the doctors, conversations with the parents, conversations with the kids, these kind of things. Uh, It is no fun being sued. (laughs) It's no fun being dragged into a lawsuit as a witness. Depositions are only fun for lawyers. And even then, I would would only say sometimes. Um, But, you know, if you if you believe an athlete is being cleared that shouldn't be, there should be something in writing in some capacity, whether it's a contemporaneous notes that you're yeah. taking at the same time, whether you report it to an athletic director, whether you report it to a coach, mm-hmm. but get written documentation that you don't believe that athlete should have been cleared. Because if you end up getting dragged into that, one of the easiest things to defend yourself in some kind of situation is to provide written documentation. Yeah, And that I, I just cannot emphasize that enough the records even if it's just an email indicating you know as we discussed you're clearing this athlete i you know i believe that there may be cause for concern here right get your position on record yeah that is the that is the best way because if something comes up six seven eight nine months a year later yeah and you're being asked to remember things, you might not remember them. Contemporaneous notes, high quality 
professional standard record keeping yeah. will help in so many different ways and can, in, and in a lot of ways, cut off potential problems before they start. In fact, the NATA um, released this year uh, recommendations or guidelines on uh, documentation and record keeping. And, you know, in the intro, what you just said is a key point that they touched on, which is very rarely is it in the moment that these lawsuits are coming about. In the the Illinois situation that we discussed uh, as a case study in the previous episode, that was several years later, and um, many athletes had been affected by it. And so, you know, potentially you've moved on to a different position. Uh, you know, you d- you just aren't sure of the details if you get dragged into something like that. You know, to to have that written that written documentation and you know injury notes and and conversations and things like that that are uh, easy for you to access. I think, like you said, you can't ever really restrict yourself from being named in something. But should you be deposed? Should you be called upon as a witness? To not have to recall from memory to just say, well, here's my notes, here's my outline. I think that's that's a, a great recommendation. But if someone gets named in it, I would imagine that insurance would be a good idea. That goes without saying. Yeah, um, it's true. Every, you you should have not only adequate but current liability insurance. Do not let your liability insurance lapse. Yes. Even if it's not, even if you don't maliciously or negligently screw something up, Mm -hmm. accidents happen. Right. Accidents happen all of the time. Yeah. And insurance is a means of financial security because these kind of things can bankrupt you quickly. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just why a medical professional would not have all of the all of the armor that yeah. they could possibly have to give themselves the comfort in knowing that they can go out and do their job mm-hmm. the way that they've been trained and to the professional standards that they can do it. Mm-hmm. Why you would want to set yourself up for failure. If you think the insurance policy is too expensive, you should really try figuring out how much lawyers are. <laughs> true because that, true that. trust me, yeah. the math, the math does not add up. Right. And I would go back on one little thing just to just to be perfectly clear when we talk about, you know, contemporaneous notes and the record keeping and things like that. Yeah. Also keep in mind that you're talking about the privacy and the medical confidentiality mm. of your athlete patients. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sending an email to your dad that says, hey, dad, just to <laughs> let you know, contemporaneously, I thought this guy shouldn't have been released. No, no. Sure. I mean, I'm being flippant, but I am dead serious at no point in time should your record keeping run afoul of whatever the medical privacy obligations are that you have to your athlete patient that's a great footnote i appreciate you throwing that in there not that somebody would think to email their dad but um you know a lot of a lot of the platforms that provide injury record keeping um have a note section and so yes and and most of them are hipaa FERPA compliant so probably best to keep the notes in there but uh, certainly otherwise make sure that you're either eliminating patient information or else uh, using a platform that allows you to abide by those HIPAA standards. Absolutely. So Tammy, because we've talked about kind of looking at our patients as the whole athlete and you know not necessarily just the commodity, I, I know that you've brought that up previously. I'm interested in hearing your opinion about the burden on parents and athletes in the development of these laws and maybe how it might affect them from a financial or or economic perspective? 
I am so grateful that this podcast takes the opportunity to be able to understand that that is an element of it because mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of really well-meaning medical professionals that I speak with and that I work with and that I have worked with, some that I've worked for. Um, the United States is a particularly unique situation in what we have for health insurance versus health care. Mm. And this has come up quite frequently at the time of recording. We are hearing this discussion um, from a policy perspective about health insurance premiums, access to health care, these kind of things. And we cannot have discussions about athletes at a variety of different levels of participation without acknowledging that those athletes and when they're younger, those athletes' families do not all have access to what I would call and what many others would call adequate medical care. Mm. They may not have health insurance at all. They may have a Medicaid health insurance. They may have an HMO, something where you have to go through layers of specialty doctors to get to something. This is not the old school days of being able to call the doctor on the corner or necessarily people that play golf with the orthopedic surgeon or something like that. That's not the reality for so many young people in this country. And if parents don't have not only the insurance and these kids don't have the insurance, Maybe they don't have the time. They don't have the access to these doctors. If you've got parents that are working and they can't take their kids during the day to go see somebody, this seems like I've, I've heard people flippantly talk about how parents should or should not be, but athletic trainers have an obligation to our athletes as a whole and in the totality of their unique experiences to understand that not all athletes have access to that kind of care and coverage. Yeah. And if we don't approach it like that, or we somehow take even inadvertently a classist perspective as to what our athletes can do mm. or what they can get to, I personally feel like that's a failing on us. Well, and um, I agree with you. And I think it also goes back to what you brought up about the right that associations might have, I should say the burden of, of responsibility that the associations have in if these parents are signing their children up for an extracurricular activity and maybe assuming that a medical professional is available or maybe even not assuming, but it goes back to your point that we discussed in the last episode about how they're collecting lots of profits. And maybe there is a burden of responsibility that they have to provide a medical professional with the understanding that some of these parents, some of these athletes are using this as a way out of their current lifestyle. They're banking on their child to potentially, you know, make it big so that they can escape their current realities. But I, I, you know, I I think that your point is poignant in that we do have that responsibility. I, I, again, could not agree more. Um, If you're paying thousands of dollars a year, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, I have friends whose kids are in youth soccer, and I'm fascinated by the output of cash that goes on to travel soccer in this country. It's absolutely extraordinary to me. I have no children, and I don't know how they afford it. (laughs) Um, But I think that is an absolute, I believe that that is, I believe that's an ethical obligation, and I've been working on actual legal obligation because they, if they are going to collect that kind of money, there is, I believe, an obligation to ensure that those that those children in most cases it's children mm-hmm. have 
access to medical professionals and are not being endangered to a point where their safety is in jeopardy because an organization decided not to provide whatever standard of care should be. Yeah, and I I know you do work for student athlete advocacy. So how do you see the Mm -hmm. implementation of concussion laws affecting athletes? Well, it's very interesting you say that. And I think that, you know, people, uh, you know, this is this will be coming out in mid in mid 2018. And at the end of 2018 in December, there's going to be some more litigation. College student athletes are bringing litigation against institutions and against the NCAA for things around concussions Mm. because for, for a variety of reasons, there are, and again, somebody wants to find me at a, you know, at a cocktail party sometime, we can have discussions about where the invention of the term student athlete came in by the NCAA. Mm-hmm. It was originally created to prevent the NCAA from having to pay what is this, what would essentially be workers' comp injuries, wow. uh, workers' comp workers' wow. compensation. And so that's where athletic, student athletes was not the, the current understanding of amateurism in the NCAA is not what it was originated as. Sure, sure. So they, they created student athletes as a way to distinguish them from employees that should have to have workers' compensation insurance paid Interesting. Hmm. for injuries incurred. Yeah. And so when you bring up the work I do with NCAA reform, um, one of the frustrating things when I worked at a major Division One universities was that I saw as soon as an athlete was either injured and cut from the team or their eligibility was up, mm. they were essentially the, – the university and the NCAA washed their hands of them. Wow. And that – that we all know how if you tear an ACL – Five or six years down the road, regardless of whether or not the ACL heals, heals meniscus is potentially a problem. Sure. I mean, it's just sure. the nature of the beast. Yeah. And so these former employees, in my opinion, yeah, um, who were injured while making millions of dollars for a university, hmm. uh, had nowhere to go for treatment for this injury that was incurred while they were employees of the university yeah, while they were yes, working I understand that's not how they're legal legally considered right now i understand but i don't i don't see how you can honestly define them as anything else yeah and pre-affordable care act when pre-existing conditions were a real problem yeah. i saw that we would have to try and get some kids in to see our doctors while they were in the athletic training room just so they could even be evaluated by a doctor because their insurance policies claim they were pre-existing conditions. And of course, then that cycles back to how health insurance versus health care is treated in the United States, which is a much larger conversation because mm-hmm. if it was treated mm-hmm. as it is in other developed countries mm-hmm. and even some underdeveloped countries, this wouldn't necessarily be such a business decision. But the fact of the matter is athlete safety is a business decision for yeah. many people. And yeah. I find that to be incorrigible. Yeah. I, I, uh, unconscionable, actually, incorrigible yeah. was not the word I was looking for. I find it to be unconscionable. And so when you're talking about the NCAA, it's the same thing as the youth sports, in my opinion. Yeah. There is an organization making tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars off of athletes. They will wash their hands up when they grade out of the system. And I think that's problematic. And I think that's part of the ethical responsibility that athletic trainers have is to at least be involved in that conversation. I don't expect everybody to take on the NCAA like I, but um, it, we have to understand that it's a larger, a larger piece of a larger puzzle, if you will. 
Yeah, I, I think you're just doing a phenomenal job of, um, you know, kind of broadening our understanding of this. And, you know, not not to say that we aren't to some extent aware of it, but just hearing a different angle about it, it, it really makes me, when you were talking there, I, I couldn't help but hear the word exploitation coming into my Uh my mind and you know it just is uh I think that probably within the next few years even if I'll say as many as 10 years we're gonna see I imagine a big change in how a lot of this is addressed again we brought up in the last episode even the discussion around uh the independence of the athletic trainer and uh the potential of seeing maybe some of our rights for uh decision making or diagnosis or return to play decisions being taken away from us because of who we're hired by um i mentioned in in oregon that there's a case up there but i i I just you know, I, I really feel like you're broadening our scope of understanding around this. And again, like you said, not to say that, you know, you need to understand every single nuance, but it really just is so much heavier and weightier than potentially we ever imagined. But I, I think that one of the most important questions that we can ask here, and this will be something that we address for every single topic that we discuss this season because it just seems so imperative is how does the reasonably prudent person address these professional standards and and tools and techniques and I hope that maybe you can start off by defining or describing what it means to be a reasonably prudent person. Well I think that's that's a really good a really good thing to understand because there's not only the reasonably imprudent person but there is a reasonably prudent professional standard of care as well. Mm. So if you look at the baseline, you know, the reasonably prudent person is a, a hypothetical person, essentially, that's used as a legal standard to determine whether someone acted with negligence. So this okay. hypothetical person would exercise um, average judgment, average care, average skill okay. in the conduct that society as a whole requires of its, you know, members and the protection of everyone's interests, that kind of thing. Okay. So it's a comparative standard for determining liability. Now, it's not a bright line rule, but it's a standard. Okay. So there's that element. But then if you take it to our step, there's a reasonably prudent professional standard of care. And so in that situation, a defendant would be judged according to how other similarly situated experts would behave in the same situation. So that's what people with professional obligations and professional certifications, that kind of thing. I'm making it very simple, but that's the general gist. So your reasonable prudent person is your hypothetical person in society. Uh The reasonably prudent professional is a a hypothetical standard by which the, the defendant is judged according to how other similarly situated experts in whatever the respective standard is would be judged. So in that situation, is the reasonably prudent professional what the majority of people would do? So if we had a a group of athletic trainers and we said, uh, how many of you have read the Zurich consensus statements from October 2016 and you're operating as, you know, in line with it? If we had 15 athletic trainers in the room and three of them raised their hand, which one is the reasonably prudent professional that they would be held to? Well, I certainly want to, wouldn't want to be any of the ones that didn't raise their hand if I was staring down the other side of the deposition. <laughs> um, Fair enough. <laughs> if if that had come out in October 6, 2016, and you asked somebody on October 7, 2016, mm-hmm. 
or if what the thing that came up in question, whatever the event was, happened close by. I mean, these are all matters of, they're matters of fact that get decided in in courtrooms. And I am being incredibly simplistic. So I'm sure there are a couple of lawyers that are rolling their eyes if they're listening to this. Fair. But I'm guessing that you're your listeners don't all want to sit through four weeks of torts class to, <laughs> to, to understand it. But it is, it is a non, it's not a bright line standard. So in your case, you know, in your, in your question, who is the reasonably prudent person? Well, the standard is not based on who the average person is in that room. Uh, so if you get someone who is, I mean, these are decisions that are made. This is when expert witnesses show up. So I if see. you are being worst case scenario, you're the defendant somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that's not the standard of care. And the, you know, the, the, the plaintiff's attorney calls it expert after expert that says this is absolutely the standard of care. You yeah. are going to be judged according to that standard. Sure. And so, so it, it sounds like the athletic trainer can reconcile kind of, you know, being this uh, reasonably prudent professional by doing a lot of the things that you've already mentioned, staying current on the news and laws, using increasingly objective diagnostic tools, obviously operating in the best interest of the athlete. But uh, my curiosity wants to know what role could ignorance play in this? Like, does an athletic trainer have a leg to stand on at all if they're just generally unaware? <laughs> this is when being a lawyer is frustrating because if I wasn't a lawyer, my answer would be absolutely freaking not. Yeah. <laughs> there is <laughs> never be nicer any about being a lawyer for ignorance. <laughs> no. no. Yeah. Well, the lawyer in me says, I certainly would not want to take that defense to court. But no, <laughs> the general gist is, with no jokes aside, yeah. you cannot you cannot claim ignorance. That's, okay. I mean, that's in, in a variety of different legal situations, you cannot claim ignorance. Yeah. And so in... in if you're in, holding yourself out as a professional, you have to live up to that. If I, sure. if I, as a lawyer, went in, you know, I don't practice criminal law. Yeah. If I accepted a criminal law case to defend someone mm-hmm. having never accepted having never practiced in a criminal courtroom and i screwed something up and said sorry your honor i didn't know mm-hmm. and the level of <laughs> the level of censure that would come from the bench sure. would probably end up in a law in a law digest somewhere so no <laughs> in no professional standard can you claim can you you can't have your cake and eat it too right if you're an expert right. you have to act like an expert yeah and, and also what I hear you saying is that there is no real hard and fast in terms of when you need to have read these or when you need to have known about them because every case is going to differ. But the general recommendation is be on top of your stuff. Make sure that you're staying somewhat updated on these things at minimum on a yearly basis. Yeah, and it's not that difficult. I mean, back in, well, I mean, back in the day. You know, you would have to read, you would have to get the paper journals and read the paper Sure, journals. yeah. Now they're delivered to I mean, our how inbox. many emails do we get of the NATA Digest yeah. right now? Yeah. You can find a lot of different things. This is, we're in the golden age of information, right. for good or for bad. Yeah. You cannot claim you didn't know because access to information is, I mean, set a Google alert for your, for That's your what I state do. and concussion. Absolutely. It's not, yeah, it's not a... Uh, you just, no, you have no excuse. 
that was um, that's actually a perfect transition. You know, I, I wanted to bring in some um, risk control recommendations or some application to practice and see if you had any recommendations to give our listeners. And I think that Google Alert one is perfect. I, I have Google Alert set up. Um, for anybody who's unaware, essentially you go to Google, I mean, actually Google, Google alerts, and you can type in any number of different key phrases. Uh, Tammy, you just recommended, you know, your state and concussion. You could just do broad athletic training. Um, but do you have other recommendations that you could give for the listeners that, you know, maybe we haven't already stated? I know that we've emphasized staying up to date and stuff, but is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you could recommend? Well, I mean, I think that the two things that we should make perfectly clear, mm-hmm. it is athletic trainers' professional responsibility to know the laws and rules that regulate our field. Yeah. Point blank. Absolutely. It is our professional responsibility to know the laws and rules that regulate our field. Mm. And on that, the second thing that I would say is to always use the strictest recommendations. Oh. If you are going... Yeah, if you're going into something trying to take the least problematic or the least effort, that is a failing on your part. This isn't a path of least resistance situation. (laughs) Pretty pretty much. And the path of least resistance has led to a lot of different lawsuits. Right. So, you know, if there is a standard of care, if there is a practice that is dictated by your state Mm -hmm. and another state has one that's slightly elevated, you will do no harm to yourself by taking a stricter recommendation and by operating at a higher standard of care. And, and a perfect example of that, um, for myself specifically, we employ both in the state of California and Arizona and Utah, but simply because we have uh, employees in California, we use that to govern our employee practices in all states because California has the strictest recommendations in terms of how you can engage with your employees and, and really the rights of employees. And so while, sure, we would be perfectly fine to uh, treat our Arizona employees with Arizona state law and same with Utah, because California is the strictest, we know that we're going to be on the right side of the law by just using California recommendations across the board. So I know that isn't um, an athletic training specific example, but that's definitely a case, you know, from a business perspective that rings true. I'm I'm metaphorically clapping for you over here (laughs) because that's, you can, as we've said, you can never prevent all lawsuits. Yeah. But that is the way to set yourself up for the best possible defense and to prove that you are operating at the standard of care that I believe most athletic trainers endeavor to operate under. Yeah. Well, so um, listeners, when you've completed uh, listening to this episode, uh, you'll be able to log on to uh, theadvantage.com slash CEU and redeem your certificate for listening. In going through the course, we've recommended some outside reading, including the most recent consensus statement. NATA position statements and a list of state-by-state concussion laws. We've also linked the cases that have been referenced throughout the episode. Tammy, do you have additional outside reading recommendations? I know that you mentioned the Sports Med Legal Digest. Is there anything that sports law puts out that you would recommend? Well, it depends on how how much you want to try and read through the legal the legal lines. There are definitely the Sports Lawyers Association uh, stays on top of a lot of different developments in the sports law world. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if people want to reach out to me directly, I can direct them to different people. Twitter is a fantastic. There are some sports journalists and some sports lawyers that work specifically and almost entirely on issues around sports injuries and things mm-hmm. like that. So they can be they can be great sources, and uh, we'll, we'll add some of those suggestions too in the in the notes. But reaching out to your district and your regional organizations and to the NATA. Yeah. Um, if you see what they're putting on, mm-hmm. if you don't see what you want to know about it, ask. I mean, these organizers would love to have some input. If there are things that you want to know about, ask them about it. Let's, you know, get more things that are going on in these different presentations. I'm going to be speaking with the Mid-Atlantic Athletic Trainers Association in May on mm-hmm. specifically this kind of thing, the, the idea of how to keep athletic trainers off of Inside, out of, <laughs> out of, off of ESPN, man, you don't yeah. want to be outside the line. Um, I love it. So it, I, that may actually, hmm, I may have just titled my talk. Oh, there you go. Um, of course, by the time you guys hear it, I'll have already, I'll have probably already <laughs> yeah. done it. But, um, you know, it's those, it's those kind of things. So I would, for resources, I would say, you know, make an effort to find people that are working on, on that just so you can kind of keep one eyeball on them. Mm-hmm. But the, the national and the district and the regional organizations, mm-hmm. you know, look for what they're putting out. Yeah. Read the read the articles that come in these email newsletters that you either filter or you know just skim. Sure, there's some yeah. really great information in them if you if you bother to to take the time. Absolutely. Well, you know, as we've seen, concussions are one of the most discussed topics, you know, at conferences and in continuing education right now. But part of that is because of how quickly it's changing, and as we've learned how nuanced it can all be. We see all states having enacted laws to protect athletes and generally educate the public about sport concussion. But being a healthcare provider, we now understand that you have a responsibility to abide by the laws regardless of whether you fully understand them or not. So, you know, with entire fields emerging for the athletic trainer in relation to concussions, there's no doubt that this topic is relevant both from a litigious and a developmental standpoint with how hard we all have worked to become and remain athletic trainers. I think that we owe it to ourselves to stay updated on the changing landscape of our profession, especially how it applies to the healthcare that we provide. So Tammy, thank you so much again for being here with us today. Again, we look forward to having you all season long and I anticipate lots of questions coming in about this and um, we will get your contact information out there so that hopefully we can get some of those answered. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to earn your free Category A CEU by logging on to theadvantage.com slash CEU and taking the quiz. If you're enjoying listening or know a colleague looking for free CEUs, please share our link and don't forget to like us on social media at The Advantage. Thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.